and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Now remember, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website and make a one-time donation or a monthly pledge. And thanks to the local businesses who help support and sponsor this program as well, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her, our chickens love her. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. So here is our lineup today. I'm delighted to have Brian Rosenwald join us later. We're going to talk about his book, Talk Radio's America. We'll also talk with Rick Stewart about his take as a retired police officer on the drug war. And while we've got Rick on the line, actually he's coming to the studio, we're going to be talking with him about uh, third parties, whether it is possible, even conceivable, that something might replace the Democratic or Republican Party, or parties plural. And finally, Kathy Burns will join us. We're going to be talking about whether or not baby carrots ever grow up. (laughs) <laughs> that, that conversation actually is more serious than it sounds. First, though, we're going to be talking about Glasgow. All eyes are on Scotland this week and next for the uh, COP26 Climate Summit. Now, the, uh, the good news, as reported by the New York Times, <laughs> well, you can decide if this is good news, but, um, and I'll quote, greenhouse gas emissions have been falling for about 10 years in the U.S. and Japan and for even longer in Europe. More recently, they have begun falling in Brazil and Russia. A decade ago, the world was on pace to warm by about 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. Today, that number is closer to 5.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And the Times admits that, unfortunately, this progress is still not nearly enough to avoid devastating results, as scientists have warned. So, you know, again, again, you heard the number over and over. The goal that science says, it's, it's, it's really not negotiable. This is, you can't like sit down with nature and say, hey, nature, can you cut us a little slack on the, uh, on the target here? We want to kind of be able to do this and that. So, you know, give us a little leeway. That doesn't work real well with nature. Yeah, she's kind of uncompromising. And so the, the uh, goal that scientists have established for us, humanity, is a goal based on reality It is the goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius, or as I prefer to say, living here in the heartland of the U.S., 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the goal. That's that's the level at which we will see minimal, significant, but still minimal uh, climate damage. I mean, it's still going to be, it's bad enough now, it's going to get worse, even at that level. But we're on target for 5.5 degrees, according to the rosy summary presented in the New York Times about all the emissions reductions that have been happening, it's still not even close to enough. And so what happens in Glasgow is so important. And you would hope that the host country, Great Britain, a.k.a. the United Kingdom, um, neither name, in my opinion, makes much sense anymore, but we'll, we'll give them that. That's their, their choice. They can call themselves what they want. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, 
You know, there has been, as the Guardian points out, there has been, quote, little hard diplomacy from Britain, the host nation, to ease the path to an agreement. And uh, Chancellor uh, Rishi, Sun Rishi Sunak, I believe I'm saying his name right, so he delivered his budget to the British Parliament last week, and he did so in, uh, I want to say it was about, a, what a, it was over a half hour long speech, maybe close to an hour. He did the whole budget presentation without even mentioning climate change. This is from one of the leading countries. Well, they're not in the EU anymore, but the, one of the G20 nations. They're the host country for the UN Climate Summit. And the chancellor doesn't even mention climate change in the budget. However, folks, well, here's the good news. There were 10 mentions of the price of cider and four mentions of the sparkling of the, of, of the of issues confronting the sparkling wine industry. So <laughs> this would be hilarious if it wasn't the fate of humanity and the planet on, on the line here. But uh, that's what we got from the host nation in advance of the most important climate summit ever. You know, this was, um, as, a, uh, as one critic points out, and I quote again from the story in The Guardian, this was a budget not about the long-term goal of saving the planet ahead of the COP26 summit, but about fostering short-term optimism, dealing out largesse, and creating feel-good headlines at home. Oh, yeah, I should also point out that um, <laughs> the chancellor uh, indicated that, that um, uh, they were going to be uh, uh, cutting out uh, passenger fees, they call them duties, fees relating to um, domestic flights. <laughs> And, and Britain's a small country. I mean, do you really need to fly anywhere in Great Britain? Just hop on a train. You know, I've, I've been around the country. Train travel's pretty good. Anyway, so it's going to get easier to fly in Great Britain, domestic flights within the country. Uh, and they're going to be spending an extra five billion pounds on local roads. Uh, that would be, the Guardian estimates, that would be enough to fill, I think, a million potholes. And this is the real kicker. They've got two million pounds to burn uh, to set up a new Beatles attraction on the Liverpool waterfront. But the climate change crisis, well, apparently that, there wasn't enough time in the budget to discuss that. Kind of appalling. Okay, so it's not just Great Britain we need to be critical of going into the climate summit. You know, the G20 nations, and again, that's the, the, the big 20, the 20 largest economies in the, in the world. These are the economies that account for 80% of the world's GDP, um, and 60% of the population. So really, 40% of the world's population is not part of the G20 nations. And, that, and, and the G, G20 includes China, uh, India, Brazil, the U.S., the entire European Union. This includes a lot of big players. But there's still 40% of the world that's left out of that, of that conversation. And again, the G20 met last week in Rome. And they, uh, they endorsed the minimum global tax aimed at um, stopping big corporations from, you know, kind of concealing their profits in tax havens. And that's good. Thank you for that. They also agreed to get more COVID vaccines to poorer nations. Okay, thank you for that. But they failed to coalesce behind a strategy to tackle the climate crisis. You know, despite the warnings from scientists getting more and more severe all the time, so, you know, I, I got to admit, I'm going into this summit um, thinking, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, we, need, we need the gold standard coming out of this. I think that's unrealistic. I, I, I don't want to just, you know, discourage people. 
I'm glad there are good people there. You know, and I, um, I, I you, maybe some folks remember back in 2015, my uh, walking buddy, Steve Martin, no relation to the actor, banjo player guy. Steve Martin and I walked from Normandy Beach to Paris, a 200-mile hike in advance of the COP21 Climate Summit in Paris. We were trying to raise awareness about the importance of that summit. And, you know, and that was supposed to be a big deal, the global event um, that finally turned the corner on the climate crisis. That's what it was um, built as. And, you know, um, there were things done there that were good, but most countries, uh, especially the really big ones, aren't living up to the promises they made. You know, and more important, I guess, it's more important to note, too, that even if nations had kept those promises, had lived up to the word that they'd pledged in Paris six years ago, even if they said, yeah, we, even if they'd followed through on that, global warming is still on pace to, like, totally, you know, sail through the target that, cl that scientists have set as what we need to achieve for stability. So, you know, I, I hope things go well in, pa in, in Glasgow, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not confident. I, I, I got to say, I'm not confident. And I, again, I'd love to come back to you two weeks from now after this thing's over and say, hey, I was wrong. They, they stepped up. You know, and I'm not the only one who's expressing, expressing some um, reservations about what might happen. Uh, also, as reported in The Guardian, yeah, happens to be my favorite paper, the um, Gaston Brown, he's the uh, prime minister of uh, Antigua and Barbuda. And he's chair of the Alliance of Small Island States. How many countries is that? Well, 39. Who knew? There were 39 small island state nations. And he said, quote, from what I've seen, it appears we are going to overshoot 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit in terms of the global rise of temperature. We are very concerned about that. This is a matter of survival for us. And I think science makes it clear. This is a matter of survival for all of us. But the island nations are probably those to, you know, at risk of going first, especially those who are at sea level or just a little bit above sea level. Brown went on to um, blame the influence of powerful private sector interests for the uh, G20's failure in Rome to come up with better plans in advance of the summit. He says, quote, we are here to save the planet, not to protect profits. And Folks, that is the uh, that is the core of the truth. There are there are powerful private sector interests that want to keep things the way they are, and we're seeing that play out here in the Midwest with these two proposed CO2 pipelines. Now, they're being presented as the solution to climate change. Let's let's capture that carbon dioxide, put it in pipelines, and ship it to North Dakota or Illinois. Right now, they're they're proposing 1,600 miles of of, of Iowa farmland be torn through in order to build these pipelines. These are big corporations, Valero, uh, Summit, Agriculture, and, and they, they're going to profit from this, especially with all the um, public money that's likely to be in the infrastructure bill. You know, it's, so yeah, this is about profits ahead of people. That's, that's, a, that's almost a, a, you know, a, a, tire, a tiring maxim anymore, but it is true. And I'm hoping that people finally are able to rise above the profit motive of a handful of greedy individuals and corporations, and get what needs to be done in Glasgow. We'll see. Um, yeah, and we're going to talk more about the, uh, the uh, pipeline stuff, folks, next week, because that is, uh, that is shaping up to be uh, a double whammy to Iowa and states in the upper Midwest. Hey, when we come back, I'm going to be thrilled to welcome Brian Rosenwald to the program, the author of Talk Radio's America, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Remember what you hear on this program, you will not hear on the corporate-owned stations. And you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor of the Fallon Forum. Go to our website, fallonforum.com, for details. Thanks also to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, anywhere in Iowa, Dr. David Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. It is my great pleasure, folks, to welcome to the program Brian Rosenwald. He's a fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, the editor of Made by History, and author of Talk Radio's America. Brian, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. It's great to be with you. Now, you wrote a book, uh, and it, it captured my attention more than any I've read in recent years. Uh, the book is called Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Now, I, I think it's a book everyone should read. And if I have my, I've had enough money, Brian, I'd buy every member of Congress and every state legislator a copy. <laughs> Again, I, th I think you provided a great service and a real eye-opening uh, bit of material for people to you know, think about here. So um, you wrote this book before Rush Limbaugh died. And yet, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh is still, of course, being lionized and quoted. I, I hear that every time I tune into uh, Shock Jock Radio. You talk a lot about Limbaugh in your book and see him as instrumental in the development of talk radio. Yeah, I mean, he, he is the guy that makes modern talk radio. He is the guy that transforms talk radio from, uh, in, you know, in the early 1980s, mid-1980s. Um, talk radio, in so much as it even exists, is something where most radio um, executives think that it has to be local to succeed. It has to be local, it has to be color-based, it has to be interview-based, and it, what there is on the airwaves, you know, it's not uniform, but what there is is predominantly kind of a staid um, version, a, a little bit uh, different than NPR, but not, not all that much. That's back in, the 80, then, back in the 80s. 
Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. back in the 80s. Right, right. And there's not much talk radio. Right. And there's not, you know, what you have is, is about interviewing people and doing interesting interviews and talking to callers. And those callers um, could be calling in to talk about anything from, you know, the new stoplight in town that's driving everybody <laughs> nuts to abominable snowmen to people seeking advice. <laughs> and, you know, L- Limbaugh is a guy who wants to do something very different who thinks that you can succeed doing something very different. He, he's somewhat of a visionary. And he's not a political visionary, though, Ed. He's okay. not someone who woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm going to reshape politics or I'm going to transform, you know, the, the political landscape. He is a guy who was a really an entertainment visionary, a radio guy. And, you know, the, the way we know that is he finally gets his big break. I, I won't, you know, Go through his whole background. Yeah, that was here. In the, that was in the Midwest, I believe. Correct. He, well, he, he starts out. He, he's been fired a bunch of times as a DJ. <laughs> he is a in group sales and marketing for the Kansas City Royals for Ooh. a bunch of years, and is miserable because what he loves is radio, not group sales and marketing for the Royals. He's so miserable. In fact, they, at one point, he's hoping that the team loses so the season would end. I hope the same. Um, I hope the same thing every year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, he gets a break, um, goes back into radio. He's about to get fired again from <laughs> a station in Kansas City because he's supposed to be reading the news. And the, you know, the station says, you're, you're giving us commentary here. So we wanted. And there was a radio consultant who understood that stations had a habit of firing the most talented people because those happened to be the people who didn't listen all that well. And he gets Limbaugh a a slot doing commentary in exchange for reading the news straight. And Limbaugh ends up getting himself fired again in Kansas City. His act (laughs) is is a little bit hot. But this is when he gets his break. He, this same consultant who had taken a liking to, you know, his talent has a partner who is um, programming KFBK in Sacramento. Right. And Martin Downey Jr. is on the air there and he says something racist. And uh, the, the station manager is not inclined to fire him necessarily, but the station owner says, look, either he goes or you and he go. Um, and the station <laughs> what an, op- what an option. <laughs> let's him go. And, you know, the, this, this consultant says to his partner, look, I've got someone for that station, the, this guy named Limbaugh. And for the first time in his career, he goes out to Sacramento and he's got management that supports him that says, look, don't be rude to callers. Don't lose our license, and we'll support you. And th- we're talking about a guy at this point. He- he's on the air talking about Ronaldus Magnus, um, you know, President Reagan. And at the same time, somebody from the Sacramento Bee looks, and he's never voted in his life. He's in his early 30s, I think, at this point. Right. So he was not an overly political guy, is what I'm saying. Right. He was a guy who had, had been a DJ in the 70s a bunch of times. He got himself fired. Because he didn't listen very well. Uh, that, that Kansas City situation was not the first time. He, he just was not someone who listened all that well to his bosses. And um, he really just, you know, he had a great shtick. You know, in, in Sacramento, he did this bit. He told people, you know, he said, if you listen to this Slim Whitman record, and your, your younger members of your audience are going to say, well, what's a record? You know, what's Slim <laughs> I, I understand that. Right. But uh, he said, you know, if you play this, record um and you play it backwards you'll hear the voice of the devil and he actually went around <laughs> and, and like overdubbed the record the, like, I, I, what i want to what i want to know is how did limbaugh know what the devil sounded like 
<laughs> I'm not sure. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, that says he, volumes. You know, he, he thought he had, uh, you know, he had a really fun shtick. It was voices, it was parodies, it was zany. Nobody knew what they um, had to expect on any given day, and so you had to tune in because you didn't know what was there to right. expect. Right. And it was, you know, really, really good radio. And he gets his national break. Um, because another consultant hears him, recognizes the talent, and the the break is due to a man by the name of Ed McLaughlin. And McLaughlin is an ABC executive, and he uh, ends up as part of his compensation to retire. When ABC and Capital Cities merge, he gets um, satellite time, and he has a slot, and he ends up, you know, picking Limbaugh for the slot, and Limbaugh goes into national syndication August 1st, 1988, and people have just never heard anything like this. He's aborting callers to show his disgust um, with abortion. He knows this is going to be controversial. It's going to generate more controversy than actual abortion in his right. mind. And so he's you know playing uh, screaming sounds and a vacuum cleaner sound. Right. Now, now you wrote you wrote in your book and I quote uh, Limbaugh was so entertaining that he would have been equally successful had he been a liberal. My question is, I, I think you're probably right. My question is, if stations are primarily interested in making money, which I believe that is the part of the part of your premise, why don't they bring on some left wing hosts? Why are they so focused now strictly on a far right wing perspective? Well, it, it develops over a significant period of time, and they do try left-wing hosts because most of these folks, with, with the exception of a company called Salem um, that, that had owns stations and puts on people like Hugh Hewitt, uh, Dennis Prager, and now today Sebastian Gorka and, and folks like that, but everybody else in the business really just cares about the bottom line, and they do try. In the 90s, um, as Limbaugh is successful, they try Al Franken. I'm sorry. Franken comes later. They yeah. let me let me try this again. Air America. They, they yeah. yeah, Air America exactly starts in, in 2004. But they try Mario Cuomo. They try um, Gary Hart. They try Jerry Brown, and they they try politicians. Boring. And what they don't understand. Boring. <laughs> yeah, boring. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They don't pick people who are radio people. They don't pick people who are entertainers, and they don't understand that. You know, to be good at radio, it struck me interviewing people that the best hosts, left, right, or center, are all people who started in their teens right. as DJs. So there are there are well, good, there are good quote liberal hosts. So why 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 did they why have they just best best been totally pushed out of the scene? Well, it it, it comes about slowly, and one big reason is that there's a lot of radio executives who believe in something called format purity. Yeah. And the easiest way to understand this is through music radio, Ed. They, they say, you know, you wouldn't tune into the country station to hear Beethoven's Fifth. Um, or, <laughs> or you wouldn't play Sympathy for the Devil on the country station, uh, you know, just to pick some random examples. So you wouldn't expect to tune into a conservative talk station and get liberal talk. No. But at the beginning, Limbaugh starts on what is known as blended talk stations, stations that have a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different, you know, things that it could be Limbaugh followed by psychological advice, for example, um, and medical advice, or there might be a sports show on the station. And the, the thing is, blended talk stations are expensive to brand. There, you, you have to ha be a community institution. You have to do a lot of branding. 
Um, and, and they, you know, the number one station in its market for 39 years, I think it was from like 1980 to 2019, something like that, is a station called KGO in San Francisco that does it with a blended station. Right. So it's doable. But the, this format purity, what ends up happening is by happenstance, you know, first Limbaugh takes off and a lot of radio executives see his politics as the key to his success. And that, that you know, he doesn't even know this is going to happen. But once he goes on and he starts talking about the values and uh, that he heard at the dinner table growing up, he's got all these people calling in and saying, you know, what, what ends up becoming dittos and mega dittos, the, right. those things, which were essentially shorthand for saying, thank God you're on the air rush. We agree with you so much. We're so happy you're there. Uh -huh. We finally have a voice. And, you know, radio executives hear that. And then the, the pivotal kind of things are a couple of stations, one in Seattle and then one in San Francisco, believe it or not, of all places, not exactly bastions of conservatism, that go all conservative, and they take off. They are wildly successful. And this is in a moment in the mid-90s when consolidation is about to happen massively in the yeah. industry, thanks to the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Yeah, and which was at, huge. At uh, I, 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 for one, cannot believe that Democrats don't make a focus of their legislative effort uh, repealing or at least altering the telecommunications act that Bill Clinton signed. Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that we should know is that no one really knows this is coming, not Democrats, not Republicans. They are focused on a lot of the television provisions yeah. of that act and things. And they're worried about the internet and they, they just don't really even think that this that they're going to get massive consolidation in the radio business. Um, and they certainly, you know, the Democrats especially don't think they're going to get this wall-to-wall -wall conservative talk thing. But what happens is once things consolidate, once you have companies that own 800 stations or 1,000 stations, it makes sense to vertically integrate. What that yeah. means yep. for radio is that you have uh, companies that own a syndication arm for programming and then own hundreds of stations. So it makes sense to pay for one set of production costs. And whatever the in format was, if it was Spanish polka music played backwards, <laughs> that's what you would have gotten hundreds of in the <laughs> mid-90s because right. you, one set of production costs, you want to bring what seems to be the most popular to all of your markets. And at that moment, it happens to be conservative talk. Yeah. And once that happens, when you have all conservative stations, there's a lot of conservative hosts who are not conservative enough for these stations, right? You know, guys who, when they're local, can do, you know, have a little bit more personality, a little bit more charm, talk about, you know, going to the mall on the weekend or something that happened in sports or weather, or you name it, because they're local, right? They're, they're institutions in the community. When they're on nationally syndicated stations whose format is conservative talk, you really have to lean into the the hard yeah. right politics every day, all day, because that's you know people in Iowa don't necessarily care about what the weather is in you know Miami or something. In fact, if they care, they're angry about it, right? You know, <laughs> right, right. Jealous, in winter. Yeah. Well, who knows? So it it, it it really kind of changes things. And then you get Air America, you get this attempt, and Ed, you and I could talk for three days about. Uh, yeah, I get that. Uh, I also could share with you my experience about being on a, uh, a station that did have balance. There were four hours of, quote, progressive talk in a format that included otherwise 20 hours of conservative talk. That was considered balance. 
when Cumulus bought it, boom, we were ousted right away. <laughs> hey, um, you know, I, that was uh, that that was a common experience. There's a guy named Alan Combs. Um, for those who don't remember him, he, unfortunately, we lost him way Han- too early. With Hannity. But he was Sean Hannity's yeah. television partner for several decades, and he was actually very successful at radio. And he got fired um, while he was number one in his market in a bunch of places. And it wasn't about politics. It was they said, you know, Alan, <laughs> you're number one at night, but you have a very different audience than our conservative morning show. And we can't – there's this thing called P1s, which are the primary audience. They said – you know, we can't use you in your show to drive our P1s to that conservative morning show. And morning drive is the most lucrative part of the day for a station because you're, you've got a different audience. Yeah. And so, you know, th- this really was about dollars and cents. And Air America flops for a lot of unique reasons. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, that, that just reinforces the idea that you have to be conservative yeah. to, you know, um, succeed in radio. And that kind of idea forecloses things. But things might have been very, very different had yeah. they found a really successful liberal host early on. Oh, well. And things, <laughs> you know, might have been yeah, very, very that... different if Limbaugh had been a liberal. I, I can give you a number of different factors that and might I... just shifted the whole thing. Yeah, I'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about that. What could have been and what might, what should happen now? Um, I mean, there's so much more we could, like I said, we could probably talk for three hours about this. But um, i got to run to a break. Um Folks, we've been talking with Brian Rosenwald, the author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party, the Republican Party, and the the party that took over the United States. Um, Brian, thank you uh, so much for joining us. And if people want to find your book, preferably not through Amazon, where do they go? You can go to IndieBound. Um, You can go to your local bookstore. They, They should be able to get it. And always supporting indies are great. And if not, shoot me a tweet if you're struggling to find it, and I'll, I'll help you dig it up. Or shoot me a tweet. Either way. Brian, thank yeah, you so exactly. much so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Ed. We'll do it again soon. All right. When we come back, folks, uh, Rick Stewart's going to join us. We're going to be talking about the war on drugs. Yeah, that has not gone so well. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where here in Des Moines, Iowa, we have yet to have our first frost. How's that for amazing? 
Hey, if you uh, like what we do here, folks, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. And thanks also to the local businesses who sponsor our program and, of course, also to our local nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change and to push back against the misuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. Learn more at BoldIowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get more information about classes, workshops, and farm tours at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Well, I would like to welcome to the program Rick Stewart. Rick lives in Cedar Rapids, which I understand has had a frost. Uh, Rick, your first career was as a police officer, and then you went into business founding Frontier Herbs. You've traveled extensively. You got involved in politics in 2012 and ran for the U.S. Senate as a libertarian. Welcome to the program, Rick. Well, thank you very much. I am delighted to be here. I know that uh, I've wanted to be on your show for a long time, and so today is the <laughs> day I, I finally get to get here. Well, great. We've been going for 12 years, so it's about time. <laughs> That's a long 12 years. Hey, so I want to talk about politics later, but first let's start. We, we, we've got to talk about drugs because um, drug policy has been something I was deeply concerned with as a legislator, and I was often the lone no vote against a bill that uh, went in the wrong direction. And now we have the Global Commission on Drug Policy not too long ago issuing a report saying that repressive strategies focused on criminalization have not worked. Here's a direct quote. Arresting and incarcerating tens of millions of people in recent decades has filled prisons and destroyed lives and families without reducing the availability of illicit drugs or the power of criminal organizations. I'm going to guess you'd agree with that report's conclusion. Uh, I agreed with that report's conclusion about 25 years ago before they had it, uh, and nothing has changed since then. It's been a complete failure. It's been a very expensive failure, and in my personal opinion is worse than that. We have absolutely ruined the lives of millions of people, and drug use remains at the same level. The only thing that's gone up is incarceration and mm. cost. And what did you see as a police officer in Cedar Rapids? Uh, I was actually a police officer in Maquoketa, which is my, my hometown. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was uh, in 1972 and 1973. And uh, uh, mostly the drugs that people talked about then were marijuana. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I saw people that uh, consumed marijuana. Uh, I didn't see them causing any problems. I didn't see them uh, ever uh, doing anything which would require a police response. And for that reason, I'm very proud to say that during my two years on the force, there was not one single drug arrest the entire time. But that's not the norm. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, the prisons are full of people who are minor offenders, uh, either having used or sold drugs. Uh, and again, some, not all drugs are created equal. I mean, right now we're, I think the momentum is there. I, I'm, and I, was, I, I think I was the first legislator back in 1993 to introduce legislation legalizing marijuana. Uh, it was laughed at back then. <laughs> that bill found its way quickly to the bottom of a drawer of a, of a committee chair. But right now it looks like the momentum is in place across the country to legalize marijuana. Uh, do you think the same analysis uh, as to why that's a good idea should apply to something much more dangerous, for example, say meth? Uh, yes, I do, uh, for reasons that are basically economic. 
Uh, if you legalize a drug, then it is going to be controlled by uh, people who are operating in the legal sphere. And uh, we already know that they, they don't act perfectly, but uh, they, they also don't act, uh, let's say, uh, dangerously and um, vindictively. Whereas if you make something illegal, then th that is going to be taken over by, in our case, uh, transnational organized crime, which is the largest uh, criminal element in the entire world. Uh, and uh, the whole uh, supply chain is uh, basically criminalized. So you've created criminals both at the user level and at the distribution level that would otherwise be honest, law-abiding citizens. I think that's just a horrible idea to in intentionally create crime. So let's think hypothetically. Uh, meth is, uh, is uh, decriminalized. Uh, will, would the, are you suggesting that perhaps that, the, that the, uh, the use of meth would go down or would it would just be seeing maybe a less uh, lower level of violent activity associated with meth use and production? Well, there would be no violent activity associated with the production of it. Uh, individual users... Except the occasional uh, lab blowing up. Uh, well, if it were legalized, they don't even do that because they follow normalized safety ah, procedures okay. for, for make, manufacturing drugs. Okay. Uh, at the individual level, we, we know that there are individuals who uh, manage to uh, make their lives look pretty miserable by using way too much meth. But that's already happening, so it's not going to happen more just because uh, we had a legalized distribution system. And I think people need to understand that uh, the vast majority of, of amphetamines in America are consumed legally with prescriptions. Uh, we make prescriptions sure. for everybody. Yeah, and some, uh, of those, some of the prescription drugs are pretty darn dangerous and addicting. Opioid, opioid crisis, for example. Uh, yes, uh, opioids can also be abused. Uh, I have some objection to the way that they're currently dealt with for a simple reason that the, the doctors don't give the proper instructions for how to use opioids safely. Why is that? Well, the proper way to use opioids safely if you don't want to develop either tolerance or addiction uh, is five days on and two days off. So, so uh, why would a doctor not, not uh, give their patients that, that, that instruction? It simply isn't in their uh, book. That's just not the way they do it. And I've never met a doctor that understood this. They just give you a prescription for X number of days. Uh, that Who writes that book? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great question. The whole the whole uh, uh, well, possibly it's the DEA that writes that book. Uh, the Department of uh, the Drug, uh, Drug Enforcement, Enforcement Administration. Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, opioids were legal 100 years ago, and right. there was addiction because they are addictive if used improperly. Uh, but there was nobody dying from over mm. opioid overdoses. There were no criminal organizations uh, delivering the, uh, the opioids. Uh, you could buy heroin in the drugstore, and it usually came with a clean hypodermic needle. So you, you, you're a police officer, and, you, um, and, and you've, you've, you've uh, experienced the drug war from that perspective. Why don't more police associations support decriminalization? Uh, I think there's multiple reasons for that, but un unfortunately the number one reason is probably because they make a lot of money uh, off of uh, enforcing the drug war uh, mm -hmm. in various ways. Number one, they're incentivized to make arrests by the DEA, uh, and they actually get awards for doing that, and I'm talking cash here. Number two, they have uh, this uh, thing called uh, civil asset forfeiture. So just say, for instance, that you had $200 worth of marijuana in your car and you were stopped by a police officer. They can confiscate that marijuana, and now it's your job to prove that you are innocent and that you're not a dealer and that you should be able to get it back, for instance, if you had legal marijuana in your car. 
This, this civil asset forfeiture raises tens of millions of dollars for police forces all around the country every year. Mm. And that's, that's, cash, that's cash money for mm. enforcing the drug war. That's DEA. Well, okay. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, do you see any hope for us moving in that direction? I mean, again, with marijuana, I think it's going to happen. I don't know when, but I think we're, on, we're in the right direction. But regarding other drugs, do you, do you see any momentum in that direction at the uh, state level? Well, I'm going to say it here uh, on, on the radio for the very first time, but my message is this. The drug war has already been lost. Uh, it's very similar to the Nazis in Germany. They had lost long before they surrendered. Mm. Drug warriors are going to surrender someday, and I don't think it's that far away, uh, and they're going to be embarrassed at the fact that they participated in it for so many years. But yes, the war is lost because there's no reasoning that supports a war on drugs. Well, and again, back to the, uh, the uh, statement from the Global Commission, Global Commission on Drug Policy, arresting and incarcerating tens of millions of people has filled prisons, destroyed lives and families, and it has not reduced the availability of illicit drugs or the power of criminal organizations. That says volumes right there. I think every, every legislative and deliberative body ought to be thinking about that. Hey, Rick, I got to run to a short break here. When we come back, folks, Rick and I are going to continue our conversation on a different topic. We're talking politics. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum here in Iowa, as in much of the country this week. Uh, elections, municipal elections, nonpartisan elections, school board, city council, mayor, that sort of thing. I hope that goes well for you wherever you are. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. All right, Rick Stewart with me, folks. Uh, we were just talking about the drug war. We're going to switch gears and talk about politics. Rick, you are a libertarian. That is true. I am a registered libertarian. So, and then not just a libertarian, but a small L, a member of the Libertarian Party of Iowa. Absolutely. Now, isn't that the same as being a kinder and gentler Republican? 
Uh, no, I don't think it's the same as being a kinder and gentler or anything. I think, I think you, just, what, you just want to legalize weed, right? Uh, no, that's no. not that's not the major. <laughs> well, platform. That's some people's perspective of libertarians. A lot of people, and, I, and I'm, I'm jesting a bit. A lot of people, that's the first thing they think of, uh, and I'm proud to be a person who thinks we need to legalize marijuana. Me too. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, you're um, you're a libertarian, uh, and the Libertarian Party is probably the most most well-known third party. I hope, s- I hope so. I think so. Well, maybe the Greens are second to that. I don't yep. know. Yep. But um, do the Greens or Libertarians ever stand a chance of replacing Democrats and Republicans who have absolute dominance at the, both the local, state, and national level? Oh, I'm absolutely positive that they do. The only question is when it happens. Uh, but uh, it's probably not going to be 2021. Uh, but libertarians win election victories all over the country. Some people don't know this, but uh, we have a libertarian county attorney who was elected as a libertarian right here in Iowa in Greene County. Uh, and uh, while most of the races that we enter uh, are not particularly competitive, we're getting better. And across the country, we're getting much better. We have a libertarian elected uh, representative to the House in Wyoming. And uh, I think we're going to get even better. Elected as a libertarian. As a libertarian against Republicans and Democrats. Okay. That's unusual because, uh, I mean, I know a lot of libertarians and Greens do get elected, but usually it's on on a nonpartisan ballot where the party, their party is not, not listed. That's the most likely way for a libertarian to get elected, yes. Okay. So tell me in your, just, in, just a brief summary, what is the, what is the perspective uh, of, of a libertarian? Well, sometimes uh, people say that their most important concept is the uh, non-aggression principle. Uh, we, we will not uh, initiate force uh, for any reason whatsoever, and we simply ask that you do not initiate force against us. And I think uh, essentially that's what a libertarian policy is. Uh, don't tell me what I have to do, and I will not tell you what you have to do, and we'll figure out a way to get things done through mutual consent rather so, than force. So are you against taxation? I'm not against taxation, but I do believe that taxation, uh, that is the, the goal of the minority to tax the majority, to use it for the benefit of the minority, it goes all the way back to Voltaire before the American Revolution, uh, which says the essence of government is uh, taking as much money as possible away from one group of people and giving it to a different group. Uh, I think that's not the way that we should be taxing. We should be taxing when it benefits everyone not just a few people. And I certainly believe that everyone should pay their fair share of taxes. And the only real question is, well, what is fair? To me, fair means that a person who has a lot of money pays a lot more taxes than a person who doesn't have very much so, money. So is, is that happening, though? I mean, uh, we have right now a solid discussion in Washington about uh, the billionaire's tax. Is that a tax that should be uh, considered? Well, I think that the, more fair? I think the current discussion is probably off track, but let's just imagine a situation in which everybody paid 20% tax. Uh, that means that a person who only earned 10 or $20,000 a year pays almost nothing, but a billionaire would have to pay 20% on all of the money that they make. And there wouldn't be any loopholes, there wouldn't be any escape clauses, there wouldn't be any special considerations. It would simply be fair and flat, and the people that earn a lot more money would pay a lot more. And ideally, in my world, the people who didn't make very much money, there would be some redistribution, okay. and they would actually have their income buffed up 
the people that made a lot of money would mm. still pay the same amount of tax, but they're not going to get any tax mm. breaks uh, that allow them to escape taxing. They're going to have to pay their fair share. So a couple a couple issues. Then I want to talk more about the the, the, the reality that a libertarian or any third party faces in a two party system. The uh, a couple issues that are very near and dear to my heart, important to a lot of our listeners. Uh, there are proposed pipelines across Iowa. Uh, they would need to use eminent domain to take farmland to build those pipelines. About 1,600 miles worth of farmland would be torn up in Iowa alone. Uh, I would presume that a Libertarian Party member would oppose using eminent domain for that purpose. Well, eminent domain is use of force. Okay. And we don't agree. <laughs> Very we, much so. We don't agree with that. That's okay. the government using their force to take something that someone doesn't want to sell. Uh, there is an economic problem there that I don't think we need to go into. It's called the last mile problem. But uh, why can't we negotiate something that makes that works for everyone? There are good economic models which show that that happens. In the case of a pipeline, imagine that we wanted to have a thousand mile pipeline. There's probably ten thousand landowners along the route. You should be able to negotiate with all of them and. It doesn't. The project doesn't work until all of them agree, and no one is forced. Well, that wouldn't happen. So you wouldn't have your pipeline, which would, well, that must mean <laughs> which would be fine with a lot of people. That, that must mean that we don't get the pipeline. Okay. So what about the uh, the the, uh, the issue associated with the proposed pipelines in Iowa? Climate change. I mean, any real serious action to address climate change is going to have to require some type of government action. Yes, it is going. Be that, be, what, what would the libertarian approach to addressing the climate crisis look like? Well, uh, my personal approach is that we institute a carbon tax, uh, and the carbon tax is introduced at a lower level, and then it cranks up over time to allow people to adjust. But 100% of that carbon tax is then remitted back to the people that, uh, on a per-person basis, that so would it's be— it's a carbon fee and dividend. That, it's that, a that carbon climate, fee and uh, dividend, The Citizens yes. Climate Lobby proposes. Absolutely. Okay. That's the way to do it right. So that, that's, a, that's a proposal that's acceptable to the libertarian perspective. Libertarians understand that pollution okay. is an externality, and when there's an externality, an economic externality, you have to have some okay. way to mediate that, and the government is the obvious first choice if they do it correctly. Okay. But it needs to be an, a mediation. It can't be a, a special interest bill. So the political consideration here, uh, again, we have a system that is set, and I don't like it. I don't like the fact that we have a system that pretty much enables two parties no more, winner-take-all sort of thing. How does any other party, libertarians included, break through that and, and find, find, find a way to, um, to crack that duopoly and, and, and make a difference and actually elect libertarians who can have power beyond the occasional county sheriff or or occasional legislator in Wyoming? There's an easy answer to that question. It would take almost no work whatsoever, and it would cost us absolutely nothing. I like that. <laughs> the Commission on Presidential Debates is a bipartisan organization that has convinced the American public that they are the official people who, who sponsor the presidential debates. But in fact, what they are is a nonprofit organization that is in, essentially owned by the Democrats and the Republicans. Yeah. If you were to do nothing other than to allow people who have a relatively small but still significant amount of support in the population to participate in those debates, you would, you would see the, the change in voting patterns to be dramatic, it would be fast, and it would be astounding, and we would no longer have this duopoly right. that we currently have. But how do you get there? 
How do you get there? Well, all it takes is the backbone of the media to say we are not going oh. to, to, to... Wait, sh- the media have a backbone? They don't right now, but <laughs> they need to grow one. And if they said... Or, or we need alternatives that have one by design, yeah. If we just yeah. said, that the media said we are going to broadcast the presidential debates, which are actually... Uh, designed to inform and educate the American people, and we're not going to waste our time on the debates which just show you a Republican and a Democrat, it would be dramatic, it would be fast, and it would be extremely effective. And that would be interesting. Rick, uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Folks, have been talking with Rick Stewart, and he lives in Cedar Rapids. He was a police officer, then he founded a business, Frontier Herbs, which many of us are familiar with. He's traveled extensively and is involved with politics as a member of the Iowa Libertarian Party. Rick, thanks again for joining us. When we come back, folks, we're going to learn something that I knew nothing about. Why baby carrots never grew up. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back, folks. Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from America's heartland, from the land of corn, beans, and baby carrots. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. So the subject of carrots, baby carrots, came up while we were harvesting carrots the other day. You know, get them, get some of them out before the frost hits, and um, and yeah, baby carrots came up, Kathy. Um, are you <laughs> yeah. glad? Are you glad that we had that conversation? <clears throat> well, I got a little bit exposed for something. I I have bought and used them in the past. They're super. And that makes you a bad person. They're, no, they're super popular. They're super convenient. And there was something about them I didn't know. And you, right. well, you told I, I, me. I said, look, you know, those aren't real carrots. They are basically somehow chiseled out of a out of a real carrot. And I d- doubted you. Wow, I, I, that was your first I, mistake. I, I, I thought, <laughs> no, they're not. They're a special variety that people grow. Um, and, and, they're, and they're not little carrots that grow up to be big carrots. They're not. And and uh, I was so shocked to learn <clears throat> what carrots go through to become the baby cut carrots. This is how I felt. So, um, these carrots? Have been murdered, yes. Murdered? Those poor old carrots, it's... it's beastly. Oh, 
Okay, so that's obviously from that's Hugh Grant in Notting Hill um, talking to his fruitarian, fruitarian date. That's right, fruitarian date. Right, right. The carrots have been murdered. <laughs> <laughs> murdered. Okay, um, so we murdered carrots too, but baby carrots take it a step further. Well, I uh, I was curious, like I said, so I looked it up and I realized yes, carrots, baby carrot, baby cut carrots are ground down to be that size. Now there is a true thing as a, a baby carrot variety, and we're going to talk about that in a little okay. bit. All right. But I looked up, you know, more about how baby carrots are made and, and why they're made that way. Okay, and why are they made that way? Why why do they why do they take a perfectly good carrot and ruin it and make it into this this little skinless pulp of a now, thing? Well, we'll contest. We'll, we'll discuss the fact of if, if they're ruined or not. But I think first of all, there was no. I such think they're murdered. <laughs> there was no such thing as baby carrots on the market. Baby cut carrots on the market till the mid 1980s. A farmer in California um, was a little. Uh, you know, dismayed about how much waste there was in the carrot production. And this is a bad thing. Uh, they were throwing out hundreds of pounds of carrots a year because the stores wouldn't take them because guess what? They looked funny or they yeah. broke. And at the stores, they wanted those smooth, perfect looking carrots, six to seven inches, and sometimes at the top, sometimes not. And the carrots that were not fitting that description could have been tossed, or they were just used for animal feed or so compost. So, what percentage of your carrot crop would have gone into not not been usable because they didn't fit the description that the grocery stores wanted? Um, seventy percent up to se- up to seventy percent of people's <laughs> carrot crops were not perfect <laughs> and not used as the carrots that you buy at the store for you know slicing and eating. So, this farmer. Um, decided to see if there was a way to use the broken and less than perfect carrots. So using um, some kind of industrial potato peeler and a, a, a green bean cutter, I think, he, <laughs> he figured out a way to take his imperfect carrots right. and make them into little two-inch pieces by a, a peeling, grinding kind of method, he took them to a store as a sample, and the store perfected them. He he made them better. <laughs> the store owner said, "Now we don't want the other kinds of carrots that you've ever grown. We only want these." Wow! And so um, the demand was created from this one farmer at this one store, and the the thing caught on. Like, May that there. farmer live in infamy. Yeah, abs- absolutely. <laughs> well, you know what? His goal was to not have waste. Well, yeah, I get that, but but the problem is that. Well, part of the problem is consumers demanding that all carrots look alike. That's the tough part. Um, you know, uh, when carrots are, you know, when parts of carrots are wasted, um, that's sad. But even the, the the baby cut carrots, the waste can be used for juices mm. and also to cut up into small chunks for canned soups and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so I, you know, I, I get trying to use, you know, find creative uses for products that don't sell the way you want them to. So what, I mean, so, so what happened? We, we, have, um, we have a majority of the carrots now for sale in stores. Are, are these so-called baby carrots? Yeah, um, a source called medium.com in 2019 said that now 70% of the carrots sold in the U.S., total are the processed baby size carrots and they are the most popular oh root gosh. vegetable and one of the reasons is more that popular than potatoes 
Well, well, that's he, wrong. Parents like to put them in their kids' lunch boxes as their healthy choice uh, part, mm. and the kids are eating them. Kids yeah. like carrots, so put a real carrot in there. I yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> parents who are stressed for time like to just grab those carrots out of the bag and put them in there. Um, some of some people worried for quite a while that because those carrots were rinsed in a very mild bleach that they they were poisoning their kids by giving to them. I well, did read why though. Would, yeah, why would you want to do that? Well, I did read that, that because they have to sit. They have to go through the processing for some time, and that mm. keeps them nice looking. And I did hear, read even from ISU Extension, Iowa State University Extension, that that bleach does evaporate from the carrot. So they're not going to be harming people. However, um, all carrots sold in stores mostly, except for those labeled organic, are also washed in a mild bleach solution. Really? Yeah. I, I would think that would be just one more reason to want to buy your produce local. Uh, organic, I mean bleach, washed, very carrots. very mild. Okay, whatever. It's still. It's <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, a lot of the ve- a well, lot of other vegetables. Well, okay, are okay. so maybe maybe if you eat a lot of carrots that have been washed in bleach, it'll cut it'll cut down your risk of coronavirus. I thought that was ivermectin. <laughs> well, it depends. It depends on which um, which. Uh, which uh, person you ask? Anyway. Well, the interesting <laughs> thing for producers, for carrot producers, is that this baby cut carrot craze has changed the types of carrots that uh, major producers are growing. So they're growing different types of carrots now in order to satisfy the baby carrot market? Because of the math. Because they used to grow, the optimal length of the carrot was uh, six to seven inches. That's the carrot people wanted to buy in the stores. That's what producers were growing. But when you take those carrots, you only get two two-inch pieces can, plus a you, lot of you waste. You chisel two baby carrots out of one six- or seven-inch carrot. And, and then you get a lot of waste. But if you grow the eight-inch carrots, then after they cut the tops and the bottoms a little bit, they can get three two-inch pieces, and it saves time and uh, production costs. So, when you, so you take an eight-inch carrot, you get three baby carrots. What do you, how, much, how much carrot is actually left? How much waste carrot is there? Um, well, you know, the root end, it starts to get narrowed down toward the end. So they're going to cut that up a little bit. But they still, I don't, I don't think they're actually going to waste. They're going for other uses. Um, carrot juices, the little bits of carrot that you find in a canned soup, for instance, or animal feed or compost. So, oh, so, so uh, carrots do find their way into animal feed, mm-hmm. along with the chlorine they've been washed in. Well, I think we have bought cat food, some of our, oh, you know, okay. Mika preferred cat food that has peas and carrots or something. So why, if this has been so successful, why aren't we babifying, can I say that word, babifying <laughs> other vegetables? Why don't we take a potato and babify that or turnip? Because you're not going to throw that in a lunchbox. And I don't, I don't know. I, I think it's the peeling part that people don't like to do. Here's another question. So with a potato, you know, they say a bunch of the nutrients, a lot of the nutrients are right under the skin. Isn't that true of carrots as well? I have to admit I don't know. I can yeah. look that up. I'm gonna... So I, I'm going to guess that by getting rid of the skin and chiseling into the core of the carrot, you're losing <laughs> a bunch of nutritional value as well. Maybe the next time we discuss carrots, we'll discuss that. Okay, well, gosh, uh, that's more than I ever thought I'd want to know about uh, about baby carrots. <laughs> but the bottom line is, no, baby carrots will not grow up. Stop asking. <laughs> hey, thanks uh, to today's, uh, thanks to our guests today, uh, Brian Rosenwald and Rick Stewart and Kathy Burns. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, 
Westrom Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And remember, your support for this program matters a whole lot, so sign up for my weekly email on the Fallon Forum website. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast platform. Thanks, folks. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.